Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. Sometimes listeners want to know about triggers. I'm dealing with the aftermath of my husband's affairs, and he still works the same job that he did when he was acting out. It's a job that allows him to hide his goings-on and one that he stated was the previous trigger for his acting out. The whole 16 and a half years we've been together, he's acted out. In the beginning, what I thought it was was just pornography. Um, it ended up being, I found out two and a half years ago, he had been with multiple prostitutes. I only found out a very small portion of that until about a month ago. How do you cope with all of that when you still have to deal with unavoidable triggers? Well, of course you would feel traumatized by hearing all that information. And I got to tell you, Stephanie, that's a staggered disclosure. That's finding out little bits and pieces about your husband's behavior throughout a time period, making you feel insecure, unsure, and unsafe. So what we got to do is set up a situation whereby you get with a specialist to do a formal disclosure so you can hear everything at one time in a safe environment. happy that this is a show that you can contact when you have issues and you don't know where to turn. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, aka Carol the Coach, and this is Betrayal Recovery Radio. And it's put on by APSAT, which is the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. And we are people that understand the trauma that you're going through. We know what it's like. We know how hard it is for you. And what I know to be true is that it has to it has to make sense to you. What just happened to you has to make sense. And the truth of the matter is until you understand about sex addiction, it doesn't make sense. And that is what's so scary is that it just doesn't make sense. And so when I talk with women, I say, let's try to put the puzzle pieces together. Let's figure out how this could have happened to you. Let's make it it your own so that truly what you may need to do is figure out what trauma your husband may have had in the past that contributed towards the sex addiction. If you didn't have trauma, you may have to decide what behaviors became so compulsive into more unhealthy behaviors because that's what we know about sex addiction. This illness does not start by itself. Starts at some point and it gets worse and worse and worse and more and more compulsive. And so, what we know is that understanding how it got developed, what contributed to it, will help you to then make sense of a very nonsensical situation. And what I really want to stress, if I can, is that it's not about you. It affects you, but it absolutely had nothing to do with you. I know you wonder what went wrong in the marriage. I know you wonder how 
could he have done this to me? What was wrong with me that he would have ever done this to me? And I know it does feel like he did it to you, but I promise you, he did not do it to you. He didn't. It affected you, but he did it to himself, and you are the collateral casualty. And that's why there are so many programs that encourage detaching so that you can realize that this had nothing to do with your marriage, your family. You may have had marital problems, but it didn't. His addiction was not because of those things. Now, they say sex addicts are selfish. They're self-absorbed. They're self-centric or perhaps narcissistic. And all those things are true of the actual behaviors of a sex addict. They are. They're true. And yet, really, I want you to know that we know that they're very damaged people. Now, whether they were damaged before or damaged as a result of the sex addiction, they're wounded. And most of the men that I work with, they want to get it right. They want to be kind. They want to be the person that they know they should have been all along. There's a lot of self-loathing. They hate themselves. And believe it or not, most of them say, every time I acted out, I said, this is the last time. I'm not doing this again. This is BS. This is disgusting. I'm not going there. But that compulsion pulled them back in. And until they know better, they can't do better. But now they have the tools of recovery. Now, you may say to yourself, well, my, my husband had the tools of recovery. He was working a program, but he couldn't maintain it. He could not. He could not manage his addiction. Well, I say two things. I say that he wasn't working a strong enough program. That's right. He wasn't. When you got the tools and you're accessing feelings, you can get through this and learn how to manage your addiction. That is what I promise you. So that's what I would say to him. He got complacent or he got lazy or something. He wasn't working the program. Not to the degree he needed to. And I just worked with a man this morning, and um, he said that his wife had left him with her phone for all of 30 seconds. And in that 30 seconds, time, he scrolled down, found some provocative images, things we might see on television or in the movies or in an ad. I mean, they really were not in any way pornographic, but they got his brain moving, put him in fantasy, and when she came down, she said, hey, keep that phone with you because Now, she knows he's in recovery. She said, hey, keep that phone with you so that when your boss calls, you'll be ready. And here's the bad news. Because he had started the cycle of fantasy going, it didn't matter whether he kept it or not. He did the next right thing. He said, no, you take your phone with you. I don't want this. And so she did. But that 30 seconds that had occurred a minute and a half prior was enough to get it going. And he acted out that day. I know that's scary stuff. The number one thing you're afraid of is that 
your husband, your boyfriend, your partner is going to he's going to relapse or slip. And I'm here to say, not if he's working a good program. I had to remind him how he went into denial. You know, he thought it would be okay for him to scroll down and look at bathing suit images. That is denial. Sex addicts can't do that. They just absolutely can't. They've got to protect their brain. We call it retraining the brain. So we want to help them to get clean and get sober and figure it out. Now, today I have a therapist on who was with us last week, and he did part one of talking about how he believes that sex addicts are empaths. And this is part two today. I, um, I really began to understand what he was saying. And he was actually saying that some sex addicts are so overwhelmed with feelings, they have a lot of feelings, that because they're empaths, they act out or numb out avoid feeling all the feelings. So today we're going to talk more clinically about what do you do about that? You know, if this is such a superpower, um, like Mr. Rogers had, how can we make this productive in one's life? And how can we help any man who numbs his feelings because he is flooded by them, how can we help him to learn how to manage those in healthy ways. You know, partners want their spouses to develop the skills to be more sensitive, and Josh is going to share what he does to help these men get in touch with a skill they already may possess. So all the way from vacation, Josh Nichols, I want to welcome you to Partner Betrayal Recovery. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again. How are you doing? Yes, very well, and you're sounding clear as can be. So are you? did you still go on vacation? Yes, yeah. yeah I'm just, uh, sitting here in a, uh, a, a house that I Airbnb'd. <laughs> so, um, so apparently they have good Wi-Fi or, or they have good reception here. So. <clears throat> excellent, excellent. So, you know, today tell our listening audience, what you wanted to talk more about. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I definitely would encourage uh, your audience if they haven't listened to last week's episode <clears throat> to, to go back and listen to our conversation um, about this concept of managing, managing your superpower, which is a, a article, a two-part article series that I wrote, blog series. Uh, really, you know, comparing uh, Mr. Rogers or seeing Mr. Rogers as an empath and and making that comparison to sex addicts and and this idea that maybe some and maybe a lot I don't know uh, of sex addicts are really uh, kind of secret empaths and they just haven't figured out how to manage that that power, you know. And so, and one of the one of the things that we briefly discussed last time was how. You know that that empathy, showing empathy or being empathetic, and being an empath aren't exactly the same thing. Um, I think you can, everybody can be empathetic and learn the skill of empathy, uh, but not necessarily be an empath. Where empaths uh, kind of naturally come by the, the the skill of empathy. It's almost kind of like we we see in like some of these uh, uh, superhero movies. How you know the it's just the power is there and it's present and and it's a it's a blessing and a curse at the same time and and they have to learn to manage it and so uh you know i really like uh the collins english dictionary uh definition of the empath where they say it's the power of understanding and imaginatively entering into another's feelings you know and i thought i think that's probably one of the best definitions i've ever heard of of what it means or what empathy is and of course with empaths they um they don't have to work very hard at that they probably have to work harder at not feeling than actually feeling so 
Yeah, that's, and, that's uh, what I was going to say. Yeah, it, and, and, you know, it's – you go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was going well, to say, I'll, would you repeat one more time the definition of an empath? One more time. Yeah, so this was – this is the definition of, of, empath, of empathy um, uh, in the Collins English Dictionary. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, of empath in the Collins English Dictionary that is – the power of understanding and imaginatively entering into one another's feelings. And I really liked how they said imaginatively entering into one another's feelings. I think that really captures what it means to be an empath. Yeah, and, and again, you stressed last week that sometimes these men who appear to be so numbed out or calloused or unfeeling are really overloaded or flooded with feelings, and they they use sex addiction as a way to dial it down, if you will, to numb out, to avoid or redirect. And that, of course, is not in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something, um, like, as, and we talked a little bit about this last time, too, about, you know, the, the role of trauma and all that. And uh, many of these uh, people have uh, some of the darkest uh, trauma stories I've ever heard. And, and we can imagine, you know, or we, we might have a hard time imagining actually what it would be like as a small child to go through some of the things that they go through and really not have the tools to manage it. And one way that I've often described uh, sex addicts is that they often feel too much, where, whereas in a lot of cases they're getting accused by their partners and and let me my little disclaimer here this is very normal and understandable given what the partners could go through but the the perception from the partners is that they are they feel too little if anything at all and uh, after working with a lot of these men uh, i come to realize that it's not that they feel too little they really feel too much and um, they have not learned how to manage it so they learn to compartmentalize it and so basically their their superpower they've buried it so deep and behind you know layer after layer and it, and um it's very protected and not just for their benefit but for the benefit of others cuz again I don't think they know how to manage it very well. Right. Absolutely. And so tell me how you help empaths um and, and men with trauma backgrounds how do you help them deal with their feelings? Well, um, it definitely is a process that, that takes some time. And, I, you know, you we can't start uh, with this expectation of that, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to chisel past all of these walls that they've put up, you know, and, and tap right into the, the source of emotion and empathy and feelings and expect them to be able to do this very well. So, um, you know, it's, it's a process of taking off layer by layer and getting, uh, in, in getting them to the point where they can start experiencing these, these buried feelings and learning how to manage those. So what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is uh, kind of with the, the second blog that I wrote, kind of using it as a guide to kind of walk us through um, looking at really how, uh, some of the things that we can take away from what Mr. Rogers did that sex addicts can take away and start at least giving them a map for what they're trying to work toward and achieve. Because again, I see him as the, the, the master empath, you know, wow. is that okay if we do that? Okay. That's perfect. Great. Uh, so the first thing that, I mentioned is this power of presence and authenticity. Like Mr. Rogers um, seemed to have this authentic presence that was able to disarm people. Um, and so there's, there's a quote from the movie. This is actually from the movie that starred Tom Hanks, where Mr. Rogers said um, he's on the phone with, with Tom Hanks, who's playing the character Lloyd Vogel. And he says, uh, do you know what the most important thing in the world to me right now or is right now? And then he answers talking on the telephone to Lloyd Vogel. 
And I, I really, you know, I held on to that. I knew, I think that was actually a point in time where I was like, I've got to write about this guy because it's such a disarming thing to say to somebody, you know, like you talk about a man with, with all these uh, irons in the fire, you know, uh, helping children and families all across the world that has his own life and his own uh, family to tend to. And he said, right now, in this very moment, the man that I am visiting with on the phone, this is the most important thing to me right now. And, and I just found that very powerful and it's, it's authentic to who he was. And I think with, with sex addicts, um, authenticity at one point in time came out, came at a cost. And so they couldn't be their true authentic selves for various reasons, whether they're in uh, an abuse situation, a neglect situation, you know, some kind of survival situation that to let my authentic self come out and be seen is just too vulnerable. And so they learn to hide that. So in, and of course, with in the world of sex addiction, the, their their drug of choice being whether it's you know um, actually having sex or it's just something sexual or pornography or something like that, these types of actions really exacerbate the shame within that that wounded person, and now their um, their darkness gets even darker. And so to let themselves truly be seen becomes very risky for them. They feel like to really be seen is um, is really dangerous. And so one of the first things as, as a therapist that I try to really do is let them know that I see them, you know, that I see them and that they're safe and that I don't, uh, I don't have ill will toward them. I don't think poorly of them, you know, and, um, but this is an effort to really try to get them to learn, start learning to see themselves that way. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I'm sure you probably you probably um, have seen that too. How the how they push back against, you know, like if you're holding a mirror up in front of them, like they don't want to see. They really, and, and probably sometimes in a literal sense, I know a lot of therapists will do that. Actually, put a therapist, I mean, put a mirror up in front of, and they um, they cringe at the sight of themselves. And it's not because of how they look; it's because they see themselves and being seen is I think you could argue it could be, could be possibly even a, a, a basic need on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But for a sex addict, they don't, they don't want to be seen. They feel like you truly see them. You wouldn't love them. You wouldn't accept them. And that's not because the sex addiction, the behavior, it exacerbates that. It's not, it's not causing that feeling. It just exacerbates that feeling that, a belief that was already there probably from long long ago. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you were sitting there saying that about the addict, and I thought to myself, I do that with addicts from the get-go. And, of course, most of the time when an addict is in my office initially, there's already so much self-loathing going on and so much I hate myself that I am saying – we can get through this together. You can be a different person. You you can make your life right again. And giving them a lot of power to know that they're not powerless. It feels very powerless. But, you know, with the right tools, with the right people, and with the right examination of their feelings, we can get through this. But the other right. thing I was you thinking is you were, when you were saying that, I thought to myself, that's exactly what I do with partners, too, because, you know, partners come in and they hate themselves and they've taken it on that there was something wrong with them and that's why their husband deviated. That's why he um, defaulted in their relationship. And so I think we're talking about people in general that have experienced great wounding. Yes, and as you know with working with partners that, you know, once the – as you. It's you know responsible of us to address the betrayal wound uh, first, right? But once the healing starts to happen in that betrayal wound, um, they often see that there's a lot of wounded woundedness around that wound that 
a lot of it coming long before they even met their their addicted spouse. And so, yeah, I can definitely see, you know, how that that approach uh, would also be helpful for partners too, for sure. Right, right. And so you said, understandably, that the first thing you do with sex addicts is to really unconditionally accept them and and really promote the fact that you are going to be a mirror for who they are and who they want to be. And so you make it safe for them. And safety and stabilization is so important um, throughout the whole therapy, but especially at the beginning when they're not sure what's going to happen. Uh, what else do you do with them, Joshua? Well, um, the so the next thing I talk about in this article, looking at the life of Mr. Rogers, and again, this is, this is for for the anybody who's uh, who happens to go or read the article. Um, uh, these are just you know this is these are just my my thoughts on this. You know, kind of where my heart was at, and what and I just kind of put it down on in in words. And one thing that um, I noticed or uh, realized about Mr. Rogers is that he had he made healthy use of his imagination, uh, which he also used for play. And I took a lot of this information from. Uh, from the uh, uh, a podcast that was done on Fred Rogers called Finding Fred that, of course, I, I mentioned in the last uh, uh, last week that my fascination began with the movie of Tom Hanks. But after that, I just kind of went down this rabbit trail. It was just all about Mr. Rogers. And one, thing that, one of the things I did was listen to this podcast in its entirety. And it's fascinating um, to hear the stories of his life. And um, he, uh, you know, we, we learn about these characters like Daniel Tiger um, and uh, King Friday and some of these other characters. And one thing I didn't realize, and I think a lot of people probably didn't realize this, is that uh, from my understanding of what was reported on that podcast is that, you know, the, Mr. Rogers, when he was a kid, he had a lot of trouble making friends. And so um, he literally made his friends. I mean, he, he created some of these characters that, that children and families learned to love and adore for decades. You know, he made those when he was a kid because they were the actual characters that, that kept him company. And they were his imaginary friends that he brought to real life and through puppetry. And um, I just, you know, I, I started thinking about how sex addicts, you know, they, uh, part of how children deal with trauma is that they get lost in their imaginations, you know, and uh, it becomes a very, uh, uh, see, helpful or effective way of coping as a, co- as a child when you're going through difficult things. And, of course, he did that too. But what's different about Mr. Rogers and sex addicts is that uh, Mr. Rogers didn't keep his imagination hidden um, as he grew and developed as an adult. So he brought his imagination out for the world to see. And uh, one of the quotes that I uh, mentioned last week or was in the article that we talked about last week is that when, when you cope with your darkness, in darkness, you're likely going to do dark things to cope with it. Uh, Mr. Rogers didn't do that. He 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 openly coped uh, with his using his imagination, um, literally in front of people. And so, which is which is strange, right? I mean, if we kind of think about it, can you imagine sitting? Um, across from from a man and him asking you a grown man asking another grown man or a grown a woman asking another grown person what tell me about your imaginary friend growing up you know um, it's not it's just not something that we do as adults that we don't really we we kind of work our way out of our imagination and we get in my opinion too focused in in reality at times they also use their imagination, but they, they do it in secret and, and it can get really dark and, uh, and create a lot of shame. And then it, it, as you know, very well, it escalates and exacerbates and becomes kind of this life of its own that ultimately, uh, will be exposed usually. 
Right, right. And so, you know, you really do have a fascination for this guy. And I always ask people to identify three to five personality characteristics that define them. And and I want to know the positive, and then I ask them about the negative. What five words would you use to have described Mr. Rogers based on your research, based on the movie, and based on the podcast? Okay. Um, ooh, I'm glad you asked me this because this is not something I prepared for, so you're going to challenge me. So I think the first one obviously <laughs> would be empath, we talked about. Um, uh, compassionate. Um, authentic. Um uh, I would probably, I would definitely say imaginative. Um, and uh, I, I think I would probably, the last one would probably be courageous, uh, because yeah. of what I was, because of what I was just talking about. Like, you know, I think one of the reasons I'm not sure about this because I haven't asked my parents, but I think one of the reasons why my parents didn't um, expose me to Mr. Rogers is because I think they might have found him as odd. You know, and um, because it is kind of odd, uh, and you know, I'm, I grew up in, you know, a uh, a lower middle class white farm family, and and uh, here in Oklahoma, and you know, you know, to playing with puppets, a grown man playing with puppets just wasn't something that was on our radar, you know, and so um, it took a lot of courage for Mr. Rogers to let part of him being known and I'm sure he probably did face ridicule from it I'm, I'm unsure completely on that but it wouldn't surprise me at all because it was very much of a, a vulnerable thing that he did and and you know the word I might use is resourceful because certainly he was able to figure out a way to entertain himself to use that imagination and to occupy himself in a healthy way that could have been um, seen as maladaptive if we were going to put uh, play stereotypes around people. But, you know, we both know that it's truly built on itself and made him the genius that he was today. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because, um, and this is, this is, these, this is one of the things that I, I don't know why. I don't know the answer to this, but why didn't it go the other way? I mean, it could have something, um, a, a survival skill like that could have easily have taken his imagination to dark places if he let it. And I don't, I don't know why with Mr. Rogers, why it went the direction it did, but I'm, I'm glad it did because I think it gives um, addicts um, a model to use because addicts are so afraid of their imagination, which I understand, and, and the partners are too. Uh, they're afraid of the addict's imagination because of how they have used it in secret and, and in darkness. Whereas um, one of the things that when I'm working with addicts that we, pretty quickly we start to talk about is, is learning the healthy use of imagination because um, that I, I believe that healing lies in the imagination. So, We've got to be able to use the imagination in an effective way, and and they can do that uh, that in a way that doesn't create harm to themselves or to people that they love and care about. Uh, but it's it's risky and it's scary because they've never they they at least haven't used it that way in a very very long time. Yeah, and and you know, again, if you think that with sex addicts, sometimes fantasy is the number um, one area of a man's brain that can get him in trouble and act out, it would also seem, Josh, that helping a sex addict to reconstruct imagination and use fantasy in a healthy way, you know, how can I spend time getting closer to my family by taking healthy risks, um, going new places, creating new adventures. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking to myself that we really, as therapists, need to help um, sex addicts redefine adaptive ways 
to be comfortable with themselves and stay stimulated in a healthy way. Yes. I mean, that is, that's, that's key in my opinion, because uh, for exactly the reasons that you said, you know, the, the other day I was out running with my son and he's, he's 12 going on 25 and he, uh, we're out running and he can, uh, he's in much better shape than I am. And, and, uh, and so uh, we're, uh, we were talking as we were, as we were, I was walking a little bit and, and cooling off and, and he's like, dad, I, I feel like that uh, I look silly when I run. And I said, well, son, I was like, if, if in your mind, if you think that you look silly, you probably do look silly because your brain wants to create, wants to manifest your, 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 your real presence as your, as it's pictured in your imagination. So if I said, so when you're running, just, just picture yourself running like a badass and um, then your, your brain will, will work to try to manifest that um, in your body. And so, you know, he, uh, he, he wanted to keep going cause I was done and uh, he kept, so he took off running and, and, uh, and as he's running, I said, remember, uh, I pointed to my head and just said, you know, uh, you know, you imagine yourself running the way you want to. And of course he looks back and says like a badass. And I'm like, yeah, yes, son. Like, you know, don't, don't tell your mom. I, I said that please. <laughs> and so, um, but, but it's just, you know, like, I mean, I think it speaks to what you're saying is that you know, uh, we're constantly in our imagination if we really think about it. When it, when it comes to just even our short-term plans or aspirations and achievements, we can't, we have to visualize what we want that to be. So we know, so we have a, at least some idea of what, or what to look for to know when we're, uh, to know we're making progress. Um, and that's no different for, um, uh, for working in working with sex addicts, but, just like what we talked about, like when you've used it in a way that had your imagination in a way that has hurt people uh, for so long and in such deep ways, uh, it's scary for them because they don't want to hurt people. They've never, that's never been their objective. And also for partners, when partners start experiencing their, their, uh, their addicted spouse using their imagination that way, um, it can be very scary for them too. And rightly so, because they were on the receiving end of that pain. Hmm. I get I get what you're saying about that, and you know I can't imagine the exhilaration on your son's face when he was able to feel differently about how he ran. I mean, we really need to use reframing with everybody. Um, so right, let's talk. Yeah. Well, go ahead. No, no, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. So now let's talk a little bit about what kind of goals. Remember, I got partners on the line, and they want some hope for their spouses. They want to actually see them differently, too. What would you advise partners to do to um, give that same kind of permission to, to do things differently? Well, the, the, the first thing I would hope for is that they would have someone like you or, uh, you know, like my, my colleagues, Carrie and Rebel, who are great with working with partners, just have someone like that in their corner, you know, and, and if they're, for some reason, they can't uh, access a, a CSAT, which is a, a certified sex addiction therapist or an APSAT, you know, the, uh, then to, uh, to kind of build a recovery team because, um, they, as their addicted spouse learns to do this, they're going to fall short in, in their efforts. And, and hopefully that doesn't mean relapse, but just in, in meeting the expectations of, of the partner, um, they're, the, the addicts are, in de- are taking an adventure, if you will, into um, something that they haven't done very much in a long time. And um, they got to get practiced at it and skilled at it, and, and in doing so, they're just going to bite the dust at, some, at different times and in different ways. So, 
uh, and of course, when that happens with with wounded partners, they're going to feel that much stronger than they would if they weren't wounded. And so having a really strong support team through this, I think, is one of the most important things for them to do, because the reality is, is they can't really rely on their on their addicted spouse right now because they the, uh, they they've been married or in a committed relationship with somebody hasn't been learning the rules of reality, you know, and so it, it sucks on that front because um, they they often desperately want to rely on them and to have that type of relationship. But I think it's necessary for their own safety and well-being to have that support system. So that'd be the the very first thing I tell them, and I'm sure you've talked about that a ton. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, giving of, of them giving their partners permission, you know, I think step one is is to make sure that they feel safe enough to do that, and two, um, not uh, to not let themselves throw caution to the wind and do too much too fast. Um, it's okay to baby step this. It's okay to tell your addicted partner that you're not ready for, for some of this, you know, and, and, you know, and again, they, the, the addicts have, they, they typically, especially in the beginning stages of recovery, they, they don't empathize very well because they've buried that so far away. So they're probably aren't going to have a good response to that a lot of the times, but, I think that's the partner still got to be able to say that and do that, even though they know we're headed that direction of doing some of these things, but they just might not be ready for some of that. And it would be completely, it, it definitely wouldn't look like self-respect for them to allow themselves to do it when they don't feel ready. Does that make sense to you, Carol? Or is that, am I on target there? You think? You are absolutely on target. 100%. And, and, you know, truly, we the the bottom line about a partner who's dealing with an addict that she's unsure as to what his feelings are is to get them to communicate together. Now, on that team that you were talking about, we really need to help couples in early couples recovery work talk about feelings together. And so she knows what she's seen, and he knows what he's seen. Because oftentimes when you come from a very wounded place, you see things differently than they are. Now, Mr. Rogers was astute at knowing people's feelings. He, he was an empath. He was empathetic. He didn't seem overwhelmed by his feelings, um, as he grew older, and he encouraged people to talk about feelings. And so in that therapy process, we need to help our couples do the same thing. What would you, uh, what do you think our, our listening audience to know when it comes to figuring each other out and feeling safe with each other? What would you suggest? Well, I think yeah, that's a great question, and, and I think it definitely fits with uh, what I was writing about uh, with Mr. Rogers in the second article, uh, talking about how Mr. Rogers uh, saw the world through a lens of compassion. So, I mean, I think one of the most famous quotes that he has uh, that a lot of Mr. Rogers fans would probably recognize is when he says, there's no person in the world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And I found that to be extremely profound. Um just the idea that out of 7 billion people, there's just one me, one person that's exactly like me, you know, and, um, but even more profound is when he says, and I like you just the way you are, you know, like that's, you know, how many people can say that about just anybody? And, um, and I don't think Mr. Rogers was saying that he could be friends with anybody or that nobody ever annoyed him or anything like that. But I do think he could say he could be friendly to just about anybody or he could understand the story of most people. And the reality is, is that addicts and partners, they have stories, you know, and as much as there's a, a pain that has happened 
from a, a specific event or series of events uh, in that relationship that has to be tended to. There's a lot of story uh, surrounding uh, uh, their lives that, uh, that led up to this event. And for, um, for addicts and partners both, I think one of the most important things that they can do in, in listening and hearing and feeling together is to have that same level of compassion for themselves. Um, in fact, one of the things I tell addicts a lot is that I don't want her to love you before you learn to love you. I don't want her to to give that to you before you give that to yourself because then you won't know if you are able to really do it, you know. And I, I would say if I were working with partners, I'd probably say something very similar to them is I, I want them to figure out their um, their care and their, nurt- and their nurturance and self-nurturance, self-care, you know, I want them to do that for themselves before their their addicted spouse starts learning to do that for them so that they know that that they don't need that from the from each other they just want it. It's a it's a relational need but not a, a need that I have as an individual cuz I can give that to myself. I can gift that to myself and uh one of the things I I say to couples a lot is is that um when you uh, desperately, I mean, when you uh, uh, when you really desire for your partner to want you, you position yourself for a broken heart. But when you desperately uh, need your partner to want you, you position yourself for a broken life. And that's simply too much power to give any one individual. You know, and so we do want them to be vulnerable with each other in the terms of want, but not necessarily in the terms of need. And I think the starting point for doing that is really helping them to give to themselves what they're really need to gift that to themselves, that love, compassion. And they can have – it doesn't have to be an either-or thing. And I think that's what often they get caught up in is that, especially for partners, is that if I give that to myself – then I'm letting them off the hook for what they've done. And what I uh, reinforce to partners is, is that you can love yourself to the nth degree and still expect to be in a relationship where you are loved and cared for and nurtured. It is not an either or, it is a both and. But I do think that they got to start with gifting that to themselves on, on both sides. Yeah, that's a, that is a great um, reference. And I always say, to Carol, the coachism, and I say that and it actually came from Eleanor Roosevelt. I made it a Carol, the coachism. But, you know, she always said, don't let anyone make you feel inferior without your permission. And I say that you should never give anybody the power to make you feel anything you know, whether that's angry, sad, lonely, whatever. And what that really requires is a level of I own my own self and nobody can affect me unless I choose to give them that power. And we teach our partners, you don't want to do that. Their addiction is about them. It's not about you. Their inability to express emotions is not about you. And what I hear you saying and what I know partners all over the world are thinking is, great, there is some hope that my spouse can develop these skills that may be innately inside of him today. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because one thing that I think is important uh, uh, especially for partners to know is that their their picker isn't isn't off you know they're they 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 if they can figure this relationship out and work through the trauma of the betrayal and get to the other side in a healthy place you know maybe that maybe they saw something that um intuitively that the addict didn't see or that they weren't even you know obviously you know uh, consciously aware of themselves in that partner you know and because i i think that 
the partners of sex addicts are the strongest people I've ever met. Like they are, the, they're the most amazing. And in our case, from our experience, they're mostly women. They are some of the most amazing women I've ever had the pleasure of getting to visit with and work with. And just mm-hmm. from knowing you, I think I agree with that. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and the addicts are, they're some of the most gentle, loving, compassionate, like I said, like empaths of people. Once you get past all the smoke and mirrors and into the heart of who they are, you really got two amazing people um, that are paired together. But there's just a lot of darkness that surrounds them that has that's got to be worked through and healed so that they can have that amazing relationship. Well, Joshua Nichols, I cannot thank you enough for joining us for part two of our podcast. And let everybody know how they can get a hold of you. Yes, please just go to my website, which is familysolutionsok.com, and you can uh, read the, the, the Mr. Rogers blogs right there on the front page. And uh, if you also want to check out uh, my YouTube channel, it's uh, just youtube.com slash recovery TV, the number four and the letter U, and that should get you right, right where you need to go. All right. You take care and keep me posted on other projects and um, look forward to talking to you again. Will do. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. All right. So that was Josh Nichols helping us to understand about addicts. Um, And I love the fact that he has a positive reframe because I find that addicts have a lot of powerful and positive qualities that get buried underneath their inability to manage their feelings. So we'll see you next week for more Betrayal Recovery Radio. I'm Carol Jurgensen, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and as I say at the end of every, every podcast, there will only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And don't forget my Carol the Coachism, Um, and that is don't let anyone make you feel inferior, inadequate, or any other feeling without your consent. Talk to you later. For more information, go to APSATS.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.